to read to you from 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, and I'm going to read the 18th verse, and then I will jump down to the 21st verse and read about three verses or four. For the preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness but unto us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block, and under the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now, we have started in this series on the atonement. If nothing else, to get across to the church today, and believers today, that the most important doctrine in the whole Bible is the atonement, which we know is about the atonement or the death of our Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross for our sins. Paul here says, for the preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness. But under us that are being saved, it's the power of God. Evidently, the power of the gospel is in this great subject. If you'd like to know why there is so much powerlessness in the gospel today, it'll, because this doctrine is hardly ever preached, and more rare than that is it preached correctly. 
it seems to me that Satan has been very, very busy in this particular area. Now, before I get into this any farther or further, I would like to read the definition of the atonement. In fact, I will read several definitions. The vicarious atonement or the sufferings of Christ are an atonement for sin as a conditional substitute for penalty, fulfilling on the forgiveness of sin the obligation of justice and the office of penalty in moral government. Albert Barnes says, an atonement is properly an arrangement by which the literal infliction of the penalty due to sin may be avoided. It is something which may be substituted in the place of punishment. It is that which will answer the same end, which would be secured by the literal infliction of the penalty of the law. When he says, it is that which will answer the same end, which would be secured by the literal infliction of the penalty of the law, whenever a law is broken, and the law is sanctioned. By that I mean that the person is found guilty of breaking the law and is then under penalty of that broken law. And if the penalty is executed upon that lawbreaker, the law of the land is strengthened. If he is shown mercy and, as we would say nowadays, let off the hook or given a probation, it is weakened. First thing it should be to some of us, we should learn that God has no way to forgive a sinner that will hurt the sinner and will not also lend something to the stability of the kingdom of God and his government. John Miley says the sufferings of Christ are a conditional substitute for penalty as a provisory measure of government rendering forgiveness on the proper conditions consistent with the obligations of justice and moral administration. Now, we have here on the blackboard something I'd like to talk about for a little while for no other reason than to go into the background, go into the history of this great doctrine. I'm afraid there hasn't been much interest in this great subject in our day, but nevertheless, I think this study, this lesson, this subject is the greatest subject that can ever grace the mind of any man and there isn't any subject in the world that man should be more interested in and be better informed in than this doctrine of the atonement, which is Jesus Christ died for our sins. Now, in the 17th, 16th century, and 18th century, I should say the 17th and 18th, was a period that has been called in history the period of the Enlightenment. 
When I ever write and use that term, the enlightenment, I always put it in quotes, which means doubtful. And to me, I don't really think it accurately can be called the Enlightenment because I think it was a period of great rebellion. And the people who had things that they had found they thought wrong with Christianity would do their very, very best to throw the baby out with the bath. And so in Europe, there became great controversies over this great subject. And I have put four of the views on the atonement here on the board. And during the period of the Enlightenment, they really, they ranged between what we see here, from here, the St. Anselm on the, was called by some during that time the orthodox view that this is what the church had always believed since Calvary. Otherwise, the reason the philosophy, the thinking, the theory behind why Jesus died for us. And it sure is evident that God must have had an awful problem, which is sin that man had, and how is God as a righteous governor going to come up with a remedy for sin, be able to forgive many sin and still maintain a righteous moral government. And so I would take a piece of chalk and I would say that they did this during that time of the Enlightenment. This is like a pendulum that I have drawn here. And this pendulum would swing back and forth like this. Over here was St. Anselm or the payment theory, sometimes also called the satisfaction theory. Then over here was this one we see right here, the Socinian view of the atonement. Also known as the moral influence theory concerning the death of our Lord. Now the liberals of that day I would say also the rebels of that day, they wrote many, 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 many articles making fun and light of this view of Jesus dying upon the cross. And they unmistakably had been calling this the orthodox view of the church since Calvary. Hundreds of articles were written by well-meaning men. They didn't seem to be getting anywhere, and especially this view here was certainly not subduing anybody on this side or convincing them. So they went to a man who was the most prominent scientist and thinker in Europe at that time, and a very, very fine believer, and a man with an impeccable education for his time because by the time he was eight years of age, he could both read and write Greek, Hebrew, French, and the Dutch language. Now that is some accomplishment by the time you're eight years of age. Most of us don't ever make that. 
and his name was Hugo Grotius, who had written the first textbook ever written on international law, still used by many people. I've had discussions on it with people that is, have studied international law. When you mention the name Hugo Grotius, right away they know. If you know a person that claims to be conversant with international law, and he doesn't know Hugo Grotius or who he was, that'd be like a scientist in this century that had never heard of Thomas Edison or William Teller or Mr. Oppenheimer, which even the schoolboys seem to know now and their names. Maybe they don't know what they did, but they know something about them. So he was a, what we would call a conservative Christian, Hugo Grotius, a Dutchman. They got him because of his great reputation for being a fine Christian, a very prominent man of letters. They thought his articles would carry a lot of weight and would once and for all, they, he would put an end to this Socinian thing and perhaps, as they say in France, give it to coup de grace, which would mean to thrust it through with a sword. Well, he accepted this assignment, so he began to see what the Socinians had written, some of them. He had already known some of them, but then he got over here to studying this payment theory. This is a Calvinistic theory, which he had gotten from St. Anselm, who was a Catholic priest and a godly Catholic priest and had first tried to systematize this. And so John Cowan had embraced this, and so this is what Mr. Grotius had to defend. So he thoroughly read this, but he went back and did a complete study of history right back to the first century, and he found out that this was not the orthodox view that had been preached ever since Calvary. That had only been formalized in the year of 1088. Not that there weren't some people talking that way prior to that time. One of them was not St. Augustine. He never believed in the payment theory. But he also found out that this exact little payment theory, sometimes called the Latin view, as I say right over here, the Latin view, or the limited atonement, or the exact little payment, he found out that was not the orthodox view. And he also found out by studying he could not defend it because it misrepresented our great God in heaven. And he came up with a book called The Atonement and the Satisfaction of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is a very rare thing in our day. I have uh, seen one copy of it, a copy of the original, I mean, the first printing, 
course, I couldn't read it. But I have a Xerox copy of a translation made by Mr. Foster, who was a professor at Oberlin College in the time of Charles Grandison Finney. And talking about now what Grotius wrote when he decided he could not defend this, and this over here, this one, Socinian, has so many false views and things that never even seek to address in the problem of forgiveness of sin. He never thought this was even worthy of an answer because it, it failed every test of being a true view or even a, any view whatsoever of the atonement because it couldn't answer the basic questions such as why cannot God, why cannot man reconcile himself to God and find forgiveness of sins without a mediator. See, it wouldn't handle that. And also, why could not God do it without a mediation of Christ? So it, it didn't even justify being called a position or a theory. But neither did he buy this, so he wound up down here in between. By the way, many of our theological arguments of our day and even political arguments of our time are still like this. Let me, let me go back and show you. Politically speaking, on this conservative side over here is St. Augustine. Because you see, your view of the nature of man will determine your politics. And St. Augustine over here said that man is born totally depraved. Over here on this side was Rousseau, the Frenchman. Really not a Frenchman at that, but that's where he became famous, from Switzerland originally. Rousseau said, man is not born totally depraved. He said, man is born good. But you look at that which was born good, and he's bad. <laughs> so then, what makes that which is born good bad? And he came up with the idea that bad governments, bad schools, bad universities, bad companies, uh, bad churches, bad religions, made that which was born good, made them bad. So here, look at the extremes that we have. We have over here St. Augustine having said that man is born dead. I don't know how the wages of sin can be death if a man is born dead, but that's what that total depravity teaches. And that's why they would also go ahead and teach that man, God has to make man alive before he can be regenerated, or he can't even repent then. Well, God would be unrighteous to a man to repent if he couldn't repent, wouldn't he? And furthermore, it's because St. Augustine didn't really understand correctly Romans 5.12, For as born man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, because all men have sin. We die spiritually for our sins, not for Adam's sins. Well, now, look at this in our day. And we got the same problem right today, politically speaking. 
I, I know we're more interested in the theological part and the spiritual part, but it's the same problem. Here they are over here, these, they're saying the nature of man, he's born totally crooked, totally depraved. Over here they're saying he's born good, and the political scientists say that your view on whichever one of these natures will determine your type of politics. And it does. But I went to one of our greatest political scientist minds of our day and philosophers, and I showed him in his house in Mecosta, Michigan, how this wasn't correct. I mean, to say, as they're saying, that this is the liberal position, born good, this is born bad. And I showed him that the true position is Man isn't either one of these. He isn't born with a sinful nature, but he's born with a physical depravity that influences but does not cause a moral depravity. Now, I have about two or three hours I could do that. And I don't think I've ever sat down with any well-educated people that gave me the right amount of time that weren't convinced in due time that original sin is not part of the fall. There is such a thing as the fall of man. I wouldn't deny it. But any real scholar knows that original sin is not a part of the fall. That's supposed to be, in their minds, one of the consequences of the fall. So... See how we do as men. We go from one extreme to the other. We go from the sublime to the ridiculous. And neither one of them is correct. Like, for instance, it's a very common thing. You can almost tell what the doctrine was when they do this by the name of the church. We will find a very good doctrine that has been neglected and not preached. And some man finds that in the, in the Bible and he finds it to be biblically true and he begins to preach it, but now he begins to forget about the whole counsel of God and that's all he does preach. And he goes from this side of the pendulum over to this side, now he's over to ridiculous and now he finds it under every rock <laughs> instead of staying right down here. I had a great theological teacher one time that said, true holiness is doing everything in right balance. We're neither here, we're neither there. It's doing everything in a right balance. And I think that's a pretty good definition of holiness. You know, it's not sin to eat two pieces of chicken. It's sin when I eat 22 pieces of chicken. There it is, out of a proper proportion, out of a proper balance. So you see, this, our theology affects our politics, and politics has not had a good effect upon theology, but theology has had a good effect upon politics in many cases, like for instance, many of those writers of our Constitution in the United States, 55 to 57 were believers of the Bible to be the Word of God, and paid for it very, very harshly. 
was made to pay for it by harsh treatment. But when they talk about nature's God and the God of nature, that's very simply that they are not deists. They are theists. And they've been many, many times, some of those men, even Thomas Jefferson, people have accused him of having been a deist. When I can show you in the writings of Thomas Jefferson, when he says about Jesus Christ, my Savior, and he talks about judgment after death, that is not the kind of language that you hear from deists. But in that day, we had people of very, very preponderance of a certain type of theology that if you did not buy Calvinism, they would even question whether you were a Christian or not. And Thomas Jefferson, when he got to be about 40 to 45, he refused to believe that. Now, Thomas Jefferson, he certainly did say some things. Like all of us, when we were in our 20s, we wish we had never said. I said things before I was converted to Christ. I hope nobody ever puts down in print that I believe that. But at one time in my stupid life, I said it. And they do that to Thomas Jefferson, and they do that to many of those men back there who worked so hard that we would get the Constitution which overlooks our system of checks and balances in Washington, known as judicial and executive and the legislative branch, which is a check and balance on our government, which has been a great thing to help us over our rough spots and to take care of tyrants. Now, but we haven't had that in political circles. So, Hugo Grotius showed this couldn't be true. And he also knew this couldn't be true. And what he began to write on was what they had right over here. Not here, I mean the governmental view. He began to show how, why this could not be true. I mean by that as St. Anselm, sometimes called the Latin view, or the objective view that God is the objective of the atonement. So he wrote on the governmental view. He wasn't the first person to ever do it, but he gave it some stature, just like Freud did to psychology. Psychology had no stature as a subject in the academic circles, but when Sigmund Freud was invited to come over here from, Ush from Austria and Germany and lecture at Harvard University with his godless lectures, the Unitarians at Harvard thought, boy, this is just a man we've been looking for. Use the name of Christ in vain in half these lectures and tear down the things of God. He was just what the doctor and the devil ordered for Harvard. And by the way, it gave psychology stature but it is a doubtful stature at the very, very best. The tragedy of that time was there were three other young men he was working with named Young, Adler, and Rank. And Rank had an exact opposite type of a psychology to him, and they didn't agree with him. But Harvard went for him like a hog goes for slop for Sigmund Freud. 
and got psychology off on the wrong beam and says that uh, all the mental problems are, can be equated with sexual problems and this baby sucking its thumb has a repressed sexual tendency when this baby doesn't know sex, doesn't know anything about it. He doesn't know puberty from Pennsylvania, but he's saying that this is a repressed sexual tendency, and they call that education. May God help us. Here again, I believe Satan had something to do with who got to be chosen to come over here. What a tragedy that was. Ah, but he could not keep Hugo Grotius from writing on this, and Hugo Grotius began to write on the atonement, the governmental view that from that time on, intellectual men could see a gospel that they couldn't find anything wrong with, and they could believe and they could love a God like that, which would tell you that when Jesus died on the cross, it did not render God merciful. It was an expression of his mercy. And you'd get such kind of statements like this. Listen to this closely, if you will, my friend. To create and shape matter is only necessary for God to speak. But to recreate man, thinking, feeling, self-determining man, torn from a true center, which is God, and plunged into the abyss of false center, which is self by the heinous thing we call sin, to recreate man and to establish him upon the high and holy levels of being with God at the center of his thoughts for which he was intended, while the wisdom and power of God conceived the cross to achieve this very end. Took the wisdom and the power of God to come up with this view come up to this great fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins upon the cross as a governmental expediency so a just and a holy righteous moral governor could uphold his law and show man mercy at the same time providing man would meet the conditions of it. But there was something that got in there that other men had put in and there were some things that were forgotten. He would not take anything away from the moral influence. It was needed. But it meant nothing unless there was the governmental problems of the forgiveness of sin handled. And a governmental view of the atonement handles all the problems that God has in the forgiving of sin in his moral government. So you can see that we are not beating here a straw man. Our whole world and the shape of our world has been affected by this controversy which I'm saying. Now then, for a man to preach this governmental view right down here, which I have the word for it right there, man has to study. But also, he's got to have a heart that's right, because only a crucified man's going to preach a crucified Christ. To teach these other views, this one, that's the easiest thing to understand I ever tried to, I ever tried to study. I mean, understand what they're teaching, <laughs> not to understand that it makes sense. This one over here, you can 
You can learn this in five minutes. And the universe is very simple because all they're saying is if Jesus Christ made an exact literal payment for sin, what is paid for is paid for, and everybody in the world is going to be saved because he died not only for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. But the thing that's wrong with that is like every case in logic. It is only good as original syllogism. If the original syllogism... That block or arch upon which it sets, if that is wrong, you pull that out and the whole dollhouse comes down. And the thing that was wrong with universalism is built upon their payment theory, and there isn't one verse in the Bible that says Jesus paid for sin or any that indicated. Of course there are figures like purchased, which is a figure of speech, but not to be taken in a literal way, as we have seen, because that would make it and some of those others like that. When we say redeemed, it's bring back the, from the dominion of self and the devil. And uh, you're bought the price, not to be taken in a literal, physical way, but to get across the principle, the idea. And so you see, we're talking here practically about the conflict of the ages, at least the conflict of the last 400 years. And how many people today do you find interested in this? I have sat in fine edifices, listened to men up there trying to preach on this subject. I was so unmoved by it and moved in the wrong direction, I felt like laying down on the floor and weeping for God to think what they'd do with this great subject, let alone having known what the others teach and coming up with the proper one, the governmental view. I have just thought to myself, it is a wonder that anybody ever loves God the way he has been misrepresented at the very, very heart of the gospel, which is the atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the governmental view here is right. This one is wrong because it's based upon this one over here, having made an exact literal payment for sins. You know, the great Charles Grandison Finney was converted to Christ in Adams, New York. He led the choir in a Presbyterian church and didn't claim to be a Christian. And he was converted to Christ in spite of the preaching. But he began to study and pray. And after he was converted, he never practiced law again. He said, I'm going to plead God's case now, God's cause. And he began to study night and day and pray his way through some of these jungles that we've all been in, theological jungles. Well, a universalist came to their town, and he began to empty the other churches because he was a sheep stealer par excellence. <laughs> and he would tell the Methodists and the Presbyterians their view on this was wrong because it makes a Scrooge and a tyrant out of God. And uh, he was taking sheep. So he challenged... Henry W. Gale, Finney's pastor, who later got converted under Finney's preaching, he, 
He challenged him to a public debate in the city hall. Henry W. Gale later started, was a founder of Galesburg, Illinois, and Knox College. And uh, he pled he was sick. And he asked Mr. Finney if Mr. Finney would go and debate the Universalist on the atonement. Mr. Finney said, I cannot go and defend what you believe on the atonement. Because you're not right, neither is he. But if you'll let me go plead with him and present to him what the Bible really teaches on the atonement, then I'll go debate him. Mr. Gale said, look, go ahead, Mr. Finney. I don't care what you tell him. I'll straighten it all out when I get well. Mr. Finney, that Saturday, debated this universalist preacher on the atonement and so demolished him in such a learned way and a scriptural way that that Unitarian preacher left town the next week because he was made the laughing stock of that whole town. Sin is an awful problem, but it took an awful answer. You get what I'm saying? Sin is an awful problem. It's an awful thing. And God had to let a sinful, terrible situation come about so Jesus could come on the scene and die for our sins to show us how terrible and how awful sin is. But it shows you that Jesus valued our salvation, our life, our understanding of how God is more than he valued his own life. Otherwise, that you might understand how God is. He was willing to die for that. Now, why then, when we take understanding of this great fact of all history in a more serious way and to find out what it was, that that man had those great revivals that we had in this century, and not only him. I have a book in my hotel room here, that thick, man, that that after Finney and along about that time preached and believed the atonement so close to what he did. That that's the kind of preaching that produced the great country that we have had. And now, with our exact little payment theory we're covering the earth with, the United States is getting more sinful by every day. And our gospel is not even shaking their, their boat or rocking their, tr their cradle. Now, it has to be right back here in the very thing that we're talking about. This is not correct. Neither is this correct. Down here it is correct. But most people listening to the sound of my voice have never heard of the governmental view of the atonement. And they don't even like the phrase, God is a moral governor of the universe. Wonder what they think the kingdom of God is. It's a form of moral government. Democracy is a form of moral government. There's many forms of moral government. But the kingdom of God is a monarchy. But it's still a form of moral government. Why are the Christian people afraid of the term moral government? That is one of the biggest problems that we have in our day, the way they're afraid of such things as this. Now, I have said to you in previous lectures, 
that man had many problems to God having him reconciled to himself, such as man's selfish purpose of life must be terminated. Guilt of past sin must be forgiven. The inner defilement of sin must be remedied, otherwise to cleanse the conscience. Man must be willing to be reconciled to his maker. Man has a great, big, monstrous problem of lack of truth on this subject. God's way of forgiving man must answer the problem that the forensic courts of our lands cannot answer whenever they show probation or show a man mercy or even parole him. That is, how do you turn him loose again and make his future con conduct and reformation assured? Our God has that in the, in the atonement. But our lands, courts of our lands, have never, they've been embarrassed to death by that. But if you understand this atonement, God has the answers to that. He figured out what the lawyers never could. Now, here's God's problems, some of his problems. God must be just to his moral government in providing an effective deterrent to sin that the enforcement of moral government should not in any way be weakened when free pardon is extended to the guilty. But under certain conditions, it can be granted. Second, personal. God must be just to himself as moral governor in revealing the unspeakable grief or extreme displeasure that God had, has experienced in man's rebellion, his loving rulership, and his energetic, energetic persistence against sin. Some people act like that. I'm talking about nuclear physics there. No. Do you know, God said to Israel, I am broken with your whorish hearts. Bra broken with their whorish hearts. Most people are not even aware that our conduct affects God's emotions. God says in Zephaniah 3, 16, 17, to the godly man, I'll sing over you. I'll delight over you. How joy over you. Otherwise, friends, you have the ability due to the presence of the Holy Ghost and haven't been redeemed and forgiven. Do you have this ability to live a life of devotion to God and Christ and service to bring joy to the heart of God? Very few people seem to be aware of that. But when God says in the Bible, I'm broken with our whorish hearts, I'm angry with sinners every day, you know what the theologians have done with those kind of words? They've ruined them and said, oh, those are anthropopathisms. Not anthropomorphism, and anthropomorphism when is when Jesus and our Heavenly Father and the Spirit of God use physical language to get across spiritual concepts, such as I'll shelter you under my wings, God doesn't have wings and he doesn't have feathers, but he's getting across the concept of protection and, and guidance and care for us. Well, they won't shoot that out of the saddle. They'll explain it, and that's only right they do explain it as an anthropomorphism. But when God says, I'm broken, Israel, with your whorish hearts, 
Oh, they say that's an anthropopathism, which means now he's saying something in the realm of the emotions, but he really doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean that I'm broken as your horse hearts. And I have said to them, if when he says, I'm angry with sinners every day, then if he isn't angry, tell me what he is. You see, the big difference between man and God is, I mean, between man and animals, is that man has this mysterious ability. When God created us, he put a spirit within us, the ability to, that we can commune with God. We can react and respond with him. We can communicate. He can communicate with us. But animals cannot do that. But if there is such a thing as an anthropopathism, God cannot really communicate with us, and that breaks the first rule of Scripture interpretation. When the Bible says something very simple, always try to take the plain, simple, evident meaning. When God says he's mad, let him be mad. When God says, I'll joy over you, let him be happy. But no, the Calvinists have made God in their own image. That's what they have done. What they don't like, they call it an anthropopathism. And that's making the word of God to me of none effect. That's no different than saying the Bible's full of errors, mistakes, and contradiction. And it cannot be right. So let's let God be God and man be man. And when God says, Israel, I'm broken to your whorish hearts, you go back there and you read. Why? And I'll tell you something else our great and just and holy and tender-hearted God could have destroyed Israel a hundred times and still been righteous. But he is merciful. He also needs a nation from which to bring forth his son. Now, when they start giving us that theological mishmash called anthropopathism in a lot of these areas, the blessed word of God just doesn't mean what it says. Well, I'm here to tell you, friends, it does. And you people that are hearing my voice, I'm not one much for telling people to memorize the scriptures, but I would ask you to memorize that verse which I said, Zephaniah 3:17. I'll delight over you, I'll joy over you, I'll sing over you, what over? over their right actions, over their good behavior, over their dedication to what is right. So why would we ever want to relegate them to a meaning that nobody knows what he means? If he isn't mad when he says he's mad, if he isn't glad when he says he's glad, then what is it? He can't communicate with us. And we're mere animals. But he can. But he can. And I say to you, whoever you are, listen to my voice. If you have been to the cross for forgiveness and transformation and a new birth, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, you have the ability to live a life to bring joy to the heart of our Heavenly Father. I think the main reason to enjoy is, I mean, to obey God, not to get to heaven, not to get the good rewards of good behavior, but because God's happiness is more important than ours. There's the main reason. He says, I'm broken with your whorish heart. There is such a thing as a brokenheartedness of God. And the scriptures give lots and lots of evidence of that. 
A man has hurt him. He said he repented, he regretted, he made man. But oh no, we will not let that mean what it says. So then, there's personal, personal problems here in God in reconciling man to him. And this is what the atonement handles, such as he must be just to himself as moral governor. In revealing the unspeakable grief and extreme displeasure that God has a, Godhead has experienced in man's rebellion against his loving rulership and his energetic persistence against sin. Third, his preparatory. By that I mean, God must be just to man's hypocrisy in destroying all pride, bringing man to recognize truth to his moral relationship in the profound guilt of his sin as deserving eternal punishment, and he must, he doesn't like to do this. Weeping may endure for a season, but joy will come in the morning. But God must have a way to show man his guilt, show man his need for a savior. You know, friends, I had a, and I still have a preacher friend that preached in a series of meetings up in Minnesota, it must be over 40 years ago now, one night, about 95 in the audience, early in the evening in his message, he asked this crowd of about 95 people, how many of you here have been born again, you're a saved person, and you know you're saved and on your way to heaven? Once you was lost, now you're found. Later, almost when he finished his preaching, he says, Now, how many of you people here will raise your right hand and tell me that you were once vitally conscious of being under great conviction of sin and eternally lost? How many of you raise your right hand and say you were vitally conscious and involved and knew that you were vitally lost? He said less than 15 people raised their hand. He says, now here's the question. How did 85 people ever get saved that were never lost? So godly preachers, our do as Finney said, take sides with God against sin. Go around and tear all the sinners hiding places down. Every sin we ever committed was to gratify ourselves and preach to them to get them guilty before God. You see, friends, the gospel is supposed to be good news, but it's not good news to the careless sinner. It's only good news to the guilty sinner. And if you don't know how to get the careless sinner guilty before God, then you don't know the first thing about getting him saved or getting him reconciled to God. But we got all kinds of excuses now for men to sin. We've got them born sinners. <laughs> We've got them made sinners. We got all kinds, and we got TV to give them all kinds of help. And we got all kinds of phony, screwy doctrines to help them believe that, that they can't help it. So what they've done with mankind, they got mankind pathetic instead of guilty. Now it's true, man is pathetically guilty. But primarily, he's guilty. It isn't that he can't obey God, it is he won't obey God because that gets in the way of his selfish manner and purpose of life. 
Well, when he does claim to get awakened then, he must come to the cross of Jesus Christ and see it for what it really is. And it's a place for him to be forgiven and for him to be transformed and get a whole new manner and purpose of life and seek God with all their heart. So you see what I'm saying is preparatory. The atonement is preparatory when preached correctly and when the nature of man is preached correctly. We don't need to go telling people that there is no such thing as original sin. Just preach like we don't believe it. Because <laughs> leave original sin alone. That, that is a, that's the God of their doctrine with many people. Many people have gotten guilty before God because nobody gave them their, their theological philosophy on the nature of man. So they didn't know that. So when the word told them they were sinners, they believed it. And they repented and they sought God, a few people, and they got converted. So the fourth thing is, and God's problem here, and the reconciling a man to himself is what we call transformative. God must be just to man's moral freedom in providing the means to be used by the Holy Spirit in purifying the innermost being of the repentant sinner in inducing him to live a new spiritual life through faith in Christ and a cheerful submission to him. And we read in the Bible, certainly that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. But the blood there is symbolic of life. So the blood of Jesus means nothing else than his life which was sacrificed in death for us. Matthew 26 says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for man unto remission of sins. He did not say, this symbolizes my blood. This is my blood. But my blood is my life. So thus, the blood of the cross of Christ is the life sacrifice on the cross and is the means whereby peace is secured. But the sinner's participation in this life is a manner by which peace is secured through the blood. The fact that Jesus had died for the redemption of sinners shows that he values our salvation more than he values his own life, which I've said before. But it seems to me most people have never heard of that or never even thought of that. So we read in the Bible that the life in Leviticus Leviticus 17, the life of the flesh is in the blood. For as to the life of all flesh, the blood thereof is all one with the life thereof. Blood is the expression that means life. My daughter here sang for us one of these lessons. I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? Now you begin to see what that means in a greater way. But it's not only just transformative, friends, but we have to get back to governmental. 
and even in all the courts of the land. Any consideration of mercy is very, very rare. By that I mean, that's not the purpose, of course. The great conflict in law has been what is right. The dispensing of pardon is regardless an event to be rare. Penalty is to show the sense which the lawgiver entertains the value of the law and of the evil of disobedience. Not that they are in their nature disciplinary or merely designed to reform, but when made real to the human heart, the blessed Lord Jesus, by the Spirit of the living God, makes his death real to death, and that means a living reality, something that we're very, very familiar. And I want to tell you, friends, something I'm certain I'm not the only one in the world does this, but when I wake up in the morning, the very first thought, it seems to me, it almost always comes into my mind is, I'm grateful that Jesus died for me, and I, it's the first thing I thank him for. Lord Jesus, I thank you for having died for me. There can be nothing more that I should be grateful for in this world. And Jesus Christ died for me, according to the scriptures, was buried and rose again. You can find faults with me, but none of them are that I'm ungrateful. I'm so appreciative for that day when he suffered and bled and he died for your sins and for mine. That's going to be my claim I haven't put my faith in him when I see him at the judgment seat of Christ.